0: Who are they? How did they get here? And where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is The Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by Johnson University's Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today we're joined in the Sojournal Podcast by 1958 Johnson University, Tennessee graduate Dean Davis. Dean, welcome to the Sojournal Podcast.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: I'm really glad you have decided to spend the time with us today and uh, looking forward to getting into this. To get started, would you just give a brief introduction of yourself to the crowd who's listening?
1: Well, I grew up in uh, Minden, Illinois on a farm in a home that was morally uh, aware, but not Christian. My dad, my sister, and myself were all baptized the same evening when I was 17 years old. That was sort of the beginning of my journey as a Christian. The man who uh, baptized us was Leroy Knight, who was a graduate of Johnson Bible College. And he uh, started almost immediately determined that I was going to become a preacher. Uh, I was just as determined that I was not going to become a preacher. That was not in my plans whatsoever. I planned to take over the farm that my dad had I've been on for years, where I was raised. But uh, my senior year in high school, actually the same year that I became a Christian, I um, made a decision to join the Navy, did join the Navy, but they refused to take me because I had a medical issue that had to be dealt with, which I didn't even know about at the time. During that time, Leroy Knight continued to work on me, talk to me, encouraged me. During my time of recovery in the hospital, I decided to go to Johnson Bible College. (laughs) I arrived here in 1953, three weeks after school had already started. Hmm. You probably couldn't even do that now, but I became a student. I had no intention to become a preacher, no intention whatsoever to go to college So I didn't prepare for college. I was a very poor student, and uh, it took me a while to catch up. As I told you, I am one of those people who squeezed a four-year program into five years. Hmm. I wasn't able because of the early part of my not knowing how to study, not knowing what to expect from classes, not knowing how to do things because I hadn't done well in high school. I wasn't able to finish in four years. But uh, I determined at that time that I would graduate, so I came back for a fifth year and uh, finished up. And though I graduated with the class '58, I really consider myself the class '57, which was the class that Dr. Eubanks was in, and we were close friends then and have been through the years. Between my freshman and sophomore year, my sophomore and junior year, I preached at a little town in Ripley, Illinois. And uh, one of the girls in the church, in my youth group, introduced me to her best friend. And uh, that happened to be Judy Mitchell. I married her and uh, uh, she has been my helpmate through the years. We have uh, three children, two that were born here in America our third child is an adopted zambian whose mother had passed away at his birth mm. so we uh, that's sort of our family situation
0: so you you set the context of being a farm boy from mendon illinois where is that
1: it's close to quincy quincy is right on the on the mississippi river between uh, hannibal missouri and Kirkuk, iowa and so it's right on the right on the mississippi
0: Okay, okay. What kind of farming did you guys do?
1: We uh, uh, had registered hogs and registered cattle that uh, we saw breeding stock from. We also showed it at county fairs, state fairs. But uh, we raised our own corn, wheat, oats, feed for the farm. It was a 160-acre farm, which at that time was a good-sized farm. And it was what made our livelihood. Mm-hmm.
0: So you, you said something interesting, that you were raised in a moral home, but a, but not a Christian home. That's right. Okay, so d- take me through that. What makes you say that, you know, you were raised in a moral home? What were those kinds of standards? But then also, what is it that got your whole family together to give your lives to Christ? Well,
1: my mother was a nominal Christian, I'll put it that way, and she occasionally went to church. In my growing up years, I remember going to church a few times, but as far as knowing anything about the church, about what it was all about, other than a few things that she would say along the way, I didn't know anything about what really meant to be a Christian. Mm. My father was a very strong, moral individual. Uh, We didn't have drinking in a lot of cursing and a lot of bad stuff going on in the home. He taught moral principles, basically prepared me in a way for living a Christian life. Mm-hmm. But uh, we we didn't pretend to be Christians at that time. And uh, as I mentioned, Leroy Knight, the preacher, came to the church in the area, and uh, he started visiting all of the members. My mother was a nominal member. She went occasionally, and uh, he visited us, and he uh, actually started working on us to become Christians. I specifically remember that uh, he came to our house one evening. We were milking the cows, and uh, I was sitting on a milk stool uh, about a cow, and he pulled up a stool and sat down beside me, and he talked to me about Christ, and he showed me the difference that Christ could make in my life and the direction that I was going, which was not good at that time. And, uh, he also talked to my father at the same time, and it was because of that that we went to visit the revival that was taking place at the church, and later that week, uh, we gave our lives to Christ, and, uh, my father and I and my sister, Leroy, uh, right after I became a Christian, followed up with me. He he told me later that he determined that the night that I became a Christian that he was going to make a preacher out of me. Now, he saw something that I didn't know and I didn't see, but he was determined. And uh, I was just as determined that it was not going to happen. And in fact, he wanted me to go to Christian service camp. Even though I was right at the point of graduating from high school, he wanted me to go to Christian service camp. And I said uh, I didn't want to go. I wasn't a part of that. And in fact, a cousin of mine and I made a trip to Kansas to work in the wheat harvest. And I did it specifically to get away from Leroy and he is pushing me to go to camp. As it turned out, I had signed up in a program with the Navy when I was still in high school that when I got out of high school, I would be inducted into the Navy. While we were in Kansas, I got a call from the Naval Office saying that they were ready for me to to go to the Navy. I came back home and went for that meeting, and in fact, uh, signed up, was inducted into the Navy, taken off for my basic training. But when they did the physical, they found out that I had a medical problem that had to be dealt with. Mm. And because we were not in time of war, they said if it had been a time of war, they would have done it and just kept me. But because it wasn't, they said, you go home, take care of this, come back. Well, it was during that time that Leroy got his chance. (laughs) He needed transportation for the kids to get to camp, to get all their suitcases there. And so he asked my dad if I could drive the truck and carry the suitcases. (laughs) And my dad said yes, which I was a bit surprised at. But I ended up being conscripted to do that. So I ended up at camp. And it was there at camp that I committed my life to full-time service.
0: Wow. So Leroy... Did you say he was the revival speaker, or was he the minister he was of the, the church?
1: Mi- he was the minister. He was sort of the power behind the whole process.
0: Do you remember what year he graduated?
1: He would have graduated in 51 or 52, I think. He hadn't been out of Johnson too long at that time.
0: Well, that's interesting that he had that passion to pass on that well, desire.
1: Well, he didn't just get me to go to Johnson. I mean, he was instrumental in doing that, but he kept up with me. In fact, just before he died, he called me and talked to me at that time to just say he wanted to have me know that he was still praying for me and encouraging me. Mm. He kept up with me through my whole ministry.
0: Wow, that's great. To have such an encourager, not only to, to encourage you to go to to Bible college, but to continue to encourage you throughout ministry. Yeah. And your ministry, I mean, that's been, that's been quite a roller coaster ride. So I'm yes. sure that he's been instrumental through each part of it. When you went to the Christian camp, you said you, you gave your life to Christ. You made that decision to go to Johnson. It, so at the time that you came to Johnson, was ministry like your only choice?
1: Well, basically, you know, you had two or three choices. It's a whole lot different than it is now. Right. You was a preacher or a missionary or a youth minister, and we didn't even have a youth ministry program. It was you, you, it was preaching, and we did have a strong mission emphasis. But in comparison to now and the program that you have for preparing missionaries, we made the same preparations that we did for being a preacher. Mm-hmm. Now, I really didn't intend to be a missionary. I had several mission groups that met on campus. I attended those groups because I was interested in other people knowing Christ the way I had come to know him. Mm. And I wanted that to happen. So I attended those missions groups. But I determined real quickly that I was not missionary material because most missionaries at that time were either teachers or doctors or building hospitals or that type of thing. They were not just preaching or starting churches. They had to do other things in order to get into the countries where they were going. Well, I didn't consider myself a part of that group. And so I determined that what I would do is make sure that wherever I preached, whatever I did, we would support missions. And uh, before I graduated, when I was still a junior, I was preaching at a little church in Kentucky called Wilde Christian Church. And uh, we had a strong missions program, and we had missionaries come in and speak. And we started supporting missions in that little church. And then uh, I moved from there to Athens, Tennessee, to start a new church. And even though we were in the process of receiving help and receiving support from others, we also made a determination that a tenth of our income would go to missions. And so we supported missions, even while that church was being started and before we had a building. We were there three years, and I moved to church in North Carolina. During the time I was there, I had continued to study missions and became very involved with men like Glenn Bourne, Walter Burney. These were men who were doing a lot for missions and helping to send missionaries. And so I wrote to them and got information from them, and I became involved in the Faith Promise program. We had at our little church in North Carolina the very first Faith Promise program among our churches in the state of North Carolina. It wasn't too long that there were several of them, and I spoke for many of those programs because we had started it The church where we were preaching had given $500 a year before we started that program to missions, which they considered and I considered pretty good. Mm -hmm. But we had the Faith Promise Program, and it was a, a matter of trying to determine how much we could give to missions the next year. And it was a tremendous success. We had a whole week of missions emphasis. David Eubanks, Bill Loft, and Max Ward Randall, who was a missionary to South Africa, were the speakers during that week. And uh, at the end of the week, when we took our commitments up, we had commitments of over $5,000. Wow. For the next year, we, I think, exceeded that uh, up to about $7,000 before the year was out, the missions, and of course, it continued to grow probably the most significant thing that happened was that Max Ward Randall, who had been a missionary for years in South Africa, he was a very, very popular mission speaker. I had written him. I heard he was going to be on furlough, so I'd written him and asked him to speak. I had no idea that he would come. The reason I called Max Randall was because he'd written an article in the Central Africa story, which was the uh, news, The newsletter for Central Africa and uh, said that they needed somebody to start English speaking churches in the capital city of Zambia, which was a brand new nation at that time. And I thought about that and prayed about it and thought, you know, I could do that. So I asked Judy if what she thought about it. I can remember to this day we were driving to town and I said something to her about it and I thought, She was going to jump out of the car. (laughs) She said, there's no way. I I don't have any intention of moving to Africa. So I just dropped it. That was the end of it. Until he wrote back and said, I'll be there. And so I had him as the closing on Saturday night and Sunday. And uh, we had to find places for these people to stay. And I told Judy, my wife, that we would... uh, have Max Lloyd Randall stay with us. And she said, why? I said, well, I want to get to know him. She said, you'll talk to him about Africa. <laughs> and I said, no, I promise you I won't say anything. And so on Saturday night the Faith Promise Rally, after the service, we were sitting around the table having something to eat. And uh, Judy set something down on the table in front of Max, and as she set it down, she said, we've been thinking about going to Zambia. (laughs) (laughs) And I about fell out of the chair. But Max Randall sat there for a minute, and he said, are you serious? And she said, yes. Now, remember, she was the one who said, no way. Uh But we talked almost all night that night, and that night we made our decision to go to Zambia. And wow. uh, and we were there for twenty four years.
0: What an interesting journey! I mean, just to reach out to a guy on a on a whim because you hear he's going to be in the states. You knew he was well respected. <laughs> and then to lead all of this together, wow! Uh, you had mentioned being in three different churches: Wilde, Kentucky; uh, Athens, Tennessee; Capella
1: Church in North Carolina.
0: In North Carolina, and. It was when you were at the church in North Carolina that all of this kind of came to a head. Right. So you made the decision to go to Africa. How long did it take you to to generate support and to actually get from where you were to there?
1: First of all, we had to be accepted by Central Africa Mission, Hmm. which was uh, the missionaries in part of South Africa, uh, Zimbabwe, what was then northern Rhodesia and Malawi. And Max Randall had just surveyed and had been in uh, Zambia starting the very first part of that work. And so that mission was covering all of that. So we applied to the mission. We were accepted. Of course, with Max's influence, that uh, was a big part of that acceptance. There are four churches in our area in North Carolina that a few years before had had one preacher among the four of them. He rotated among those four churches. And as churches grew. They got to a point where they had two preachers. One preacher preached at two of those churches. Another one preached at the other two. And then as time went on, and this was just before we had gotten there, Each one went full-time, and they each had a preacher. So those four churches had a relationship of working together. So when we decided to go to Zambia, I called the other three preachers and had them to talk to their elders and ask if I could have a meeting of the elders of those four churches. And in that meeting, I challenged those four churches to be our Living Link support. And if the four of them would work together, as they had with their preachers, they could send a missionary. And they accepted that challenge. And so before I ever left the Capella Church, we had our base support raised. Yeah. That is our living leg from that ch- those churches. But we still had to have working funds. And so I started setting up appointments with churches, preachers that I knew, people that I knew. And uh, I traveled for almost a year raising support. Mm. And uh, when we got our final support, then we we made our trip.
0: You were going over then to Zambia to be a church planter of an English church?
1: Yes. That was the initial plan. <laughs> it never got off the ground at first. <laughs> uh, when we got to Zambia... Bill Brandt and his wife were working in Kitwe in the Copper Belt of Zambia. Leroy Randall, who was Max's son, Don Meacham, and uh, a couple of others were working in the Capital City area, but out in the bush. Nobody was actually doing city work. And uh, when we got to Zambia, Bill challenged us to come to the Copper Belt and go to a different city and. Try start churches in the city. And so that's what we did. We actually started the first congregation in our backyard among house servants in the area where we lived. And then when we had about 30 people that were meeting, we moved to what is called a township to a housing area outside the city and started meeting in a school and then later built the first church there in that area. English speaking, no, I'm not a linguist, I never was a linguist. I learned to get around in the, in the language, but I never was competent enough preaching so I, I used interpreters, which is not the best way to go, and not the way that I encourage people to go, but it was what I had to do. that was just the way it turned out. We actually worked with local language churches for the first eight or ten years that we were there, and then We moved to the capital city, and we did start our first English-speaking church there in Lusaka. Hmm.
0: Was church planning the only thing you did while you were there?
1: I always said there were three major components to what we did. We would go to an area and meet people and try to win some people to Christ. Second part of that was to draw those people together in a body of believers. And the third thing was to train leadership. That was basically what our whole program was.
0: So you were there for how many years?
1: Twenty-four.
0: Twenty-four. What ultimately led you out of Zambia?
1: Well, basically, we had the, the churches in the area where we were in Lusaka were were all on their own and doing pretty well. We were really getting ready to come home on furlough and... Uh, my mother, who was still living at that time, her health had become pretty poor. And I also had a, a mentally handicapped sister who lived with my mother. And I realized that they were, they were going to be in need of help. We felt drawn to come back in order to be able to help take care of them. It wasn't too long after that that my mother passed away. My sister lived with us. And so it worked out, I think, as God intended for mm. it to work. Yeah. For me to take care of it. The
0: timing was right. Yes. You mentioning your mother and your sister kind of brought me back to something that I should have asked you before. Uh, what was the reaction of your mom and dad when you said you were going to Zambia?
1: <laughs> well, by the time we were ready to go to Zambia, my father had passed away. Uh, he died of a heart attack when he was 60, just suddenly. And uh, my mother was li- and my sister were living in Missouri. Uh, what was the reaction? Surprise, I think. Uh, Judy's parents were even more surprised. But basically, we had their support. They they stood behind us. They they encouraged us. There was hesitancy, but, uh, but they stood behind us. We never faced opposition from our family.
0: Good. So you said you had uh, two natural-born children and then one uh, adopted. Were your first two born in the States before you went? Were yes, they, born there? Okay. they were
1: both born in Kentucky.
0: Okay. How did you make connection with the third one?
1: Well, a family in one of the churches that we were working with, this uh, family came pitched up at our house one day and said that the mother of a newborn baby had just died and that they had this baby and they didn't know what they were going to do with it. They had nobody in the village that could take care of it. This was kind of a long process, but in the process of it, Judy and I decided that we would take that baby and keep him alive and get him started on formula and until he could be taken back to his grandparents in the village. By the time we'd had him for two or three months to get his health built back up because he was premature. and weighed less than four pounds when, oh, wow. we, when we got him. And there were two or three times we thought that he was going to pass away. But uh, we became awfully attached to him. And when we went back to the village and said, time has come, you need to take the baby so you can raise him in the village and you can take care of it. And the old grandfather said, he's not our baby, he's yours. You saved his life. So he's yours. He belongs to you. Hmm. And that kind of threw us for a loop. But we started adoption proceedings. And we, on the day that he was 10 months old, no, I'm sorry, 9 months old, we adopted, our adoption was through, went through. Hmm. So we adopted him.
0: This is David, right? Yes. I, what I remember about David is he is a muscular guy. I mean, works yeah. out a lot. Yeah. So. It's like for being this little four-pound baby to who he is today, it's like that's a yeah. contrast. Yeah. That is a contrast. Wow. Okay, so uh, you came back to the United States to to be of service, help to your family. How did you get to Johnson as an employee?
1: Well, I had stayed in touch with Johnson, supported Johnson, all through our time in, in Zambia. I always figured that there are three things in missions that we need to do we need to pray, we need to send, we need to go. And I figure that wherever I go, I still need to pray and send. And so Johnson was one of the places that we supported all of the time that we were in Zambia. Dr. Eubanks had become a member of our board. And so we had a very close relationship with them. He and Margaret came to Zambia and spent about a month time with us and other missionaries. Uh, in Zambia. So we had a very close relationship. As I said, I was in the same class with him. That relationship had started years before. Because of that, my relationship with him, before I went to Zambia, I held the first Faith Promise Rally at Woodlawn Christian Church, where David was the preacher. Uh So we had a close relationship. And when we made our decision to come back, I had no idea what we would do. I figured that probably I would find a church someplace. And so David called me and asked me if I would start a new program at Johnson. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, we need a director of church relations, somebody to connect with our churches and get them knowledgeable of what's going on. But we need to know what the churches are doing. Will you come and be our First director of church relations. And that's how I came to Johnson.
0: So how long were you the director of church relations with Johnson?
1: Thirteen years. He added to that, as you know, working for Johnson, you never know for sure when your job description is going to change. But uh, someplace, and I can't remember exactly at what point, Dr. Eubanks made me also the director of alumni relations. So I was director of alumni and church relations at the same time.
0: The president's vision for church relations was one where you would make sure the churches were informed, but also that you would understand what was going on in the churches?
1: Yes. I considered one of the primary parts of my job was to say thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you was always the first two words that I said when I spoke to a missions committee or to a church. At that time, it was not difficult to get in a church and the preacher would ask you to preach the time that you were there. That time has changed, Mm -hmm. as you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had done a lot of revival speaking, had a lot of contact with churches during our time as missionary, and so I used that as sort of a springboard. A lot of the churches that supported us also supported Johnson, or should be supporting Johnson. Mm-hmm. And so I shifted my emphasis from them supporting the mission to supporting Johnson. But I always considered one of the most important part of the job was to let them know how much we appreciated the church being a part of the work of Johnson. But at the same time, let them know the needs, where we were, what program was going on, what capital campaign was being undertaken what we needed from them. And so it was a matter of, of continuing to do that. Now, it sort of became a, a natural that I would also work with the alumni because I was speaking to the alumni mm-hmm. in these churches. Right. So it helped wherever I traveled. I, I would try to find alumni in the area and then meet with them, talk with them, and encourage them at the same, same time.
0: You know, we sort of missed talking about your journey from the experience that you had at Johnson. You obviously came to Johnson not very deep into the Word, so you had a lot of growing to do here. What, you know, was, your, what was your journey like in those four and a half, five years here at Johnson?
1: Well, I had to go from scratch. I went to Old Testament in the freshman year, and I would go to class. And Dr. Black was the teacher. And he would start talking about Moses and Joseph and different characters in the Old Testament. I had no clue what he was talking about. Uh-huh. I had to start from scratch, and uh, it was a it was a it was a, quite a journey right to, to learn from that. And that was one reason. Well, I never had learned to study when I was in high school mm-hmm. because I didn't intend to go any farther. So I had to learn how to study, how to, how to apply my time, how to do what I needed to do. And by the time I was in my junior and senior year, I was making decent grades, good grades. I'd learned how to apply myself. And it was at that time that I determined no matter what, I'm going to graduate. Mm. I will finish.
0: So then. who are the faculty members that you remember the most?
1: Floyd Clark was one of the most significant ones. He was the dean at that time. Those first years were really rough. They were rough in two ways. One, I was rough because I come from a good moral background, but I didn't always follow it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was headed in the wrong direction. And when I came here, I had a lot of baggage. And Floyd Clark saw that when he the grades came out. All of the grades for all of the students were posted on the bulletin boards of the dorms. And so everybody could see your grades. And mine, my first grade report that came out, I had a 0.2 grade point average because I had missed the first three weeks and I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine the embarrassment that went with that. And, uh, I remember on a day that saying everything fell apart, I walked into Dean Clark's office at his house, and I threw my books on his desk. Now, most people were scared to death of Dean Clark. (laughs) I didn't have sense enough to be afraid of him. But I threw my books on his desk, and I said, I'm through. I quit. I'm out of here. And then I told him what I thought of their discipline. There are programs of not letting you off campus if you didn't have a certain grade. I couldn't even go to the little store on the corner uh, because my grade wasn't good enough. And uh, I told him what I thought of all of those things and said, I'm through. I started out the door. He just sat there. He didn't say a word. And he sat there until I finished. And I started out the door. And he said, Davis. And I turned around and he said, why don't you stick around? Things will change. And I stayed hmm. because what he said. Hmm. Otherwise, I would have been gone. Wow. And uh, those first first years were pretty pretty tough.
0: Yeah, but to imagine, you know, the experiences that you've had in ministry, in in churches in Zambia back at Johnson doing church relations and alumni relations, and you've done more even beyond that, to imagine that all of those experiences, all of that work for Christ was saved right there. That's right. Yeah, that
1: that was a turning point in my life. And uh, Dean Clark, when he was the academic dean, you rarely ever saw him smile. (laughs) You, uh, most people were scared to death of him. Mm-hmm. And his classes were tough, tough. And uh, it was kind of interesting. After that a- event took place, I could be walking with a bunch of boys uh, on the campus, and we would meet Dean Clark. He would say, hi, Dean, and walk on. The other guys didn't even acknowledge. Uh-huh. And he always made a point of encouraging me. Mm-hmm. I came to Zambia on one occasion. <laughs> he was he was the turning point. But there were some other f- professors that were kind and understanding. One of our professors was uh, Fred Craddock. He came the same year that our class started, and he left the year that we left. <laughs> but he was here for four, for those four years and was our class sponsor. As far as teaching was concerned. He was probably my favorite. Hmm. I had a close relationship with Fred Craddock. He came to two different churches where I preached and spoke after I graduated. Another professor was Dr. Black, a marvelous, marvelous man. If it hadn't been for his patience, I'd have never passed Old Testament. Huh. <laughs> but uh, they were people who made a big difference. Right. In my life.
0: Did you sit in Floyd Clark's hot seat?
1: Oh, yes. More than once. <laughs> yeah.
0: How was that experience for you?
1: Frightening, humiliating. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess I saw him different. And so I, I reacted differently mm. than than most people. Mm-hmm. Because I realized from that day that he told me to stick around, that he cared about me as an individual. Mm-hmm. So I reacted differently than a lot of students did. Mm. I remember he taught apologetics and we used Wilbur Smith's book, Therefore Stand, as the apologetic text. And our final exam, we went in and sat down everybody was scared to death because he gave tough, tough test. And after everybody was seated, he said, This is going to be an open book test. I want you to go back to your rooms. You've got two hours. I want you to outline the book and then fill in the outline. And that was his assignment. And we went back into our rooms and I, some of the boys that were really straight A students and good students were pulling their hair out. What are we going to do? What are we, how are we going to do this? And they were trying to figure out, you know, what, 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 are, what can I say? Well, I realized that I was too stupid to add anything to it, so I simply took the index of the book and wrote down the main headings through every chapter. Then I went to every chapter and found a key sentence and wrote it underneath it, and I turned it in, and when I got my grade back, I had an A. And then in class that day when he handed the papers back, he said, some of you— think you're smarter than the author. He said, all you had to do was look at the index and then put in something about it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I I lucked out on that.
0: <laughs> oh, my. Well, Dean, uh, first of all, thank you so much for, well, for giving me your time and you're uh, giving us the opportunity to get to know you better. I can't let you go without asking you two more questions that I've been asking of every one of the podcast guests. Throughout your journey, you've certainly learned a lot. What is something that you've learned that you really would like other people to know about God, about life, about ministry? What's something you've learned in your journey that you'd wish to share with others?
1: Our greatest ability is our availability. If we're available to God and we put ourselves in His hands, and we make it clear to him that we're willing to follow He'll use us mm.
0: wow, that's golden right there. I mean we could just that's it cut print <laughs> we're good. that's that's good, and challenging. I think a lot of us are afraid to be available be available, yeah, we want God to do it our way yeah. and ask him to bless it, but not. Just be available to do it his. Uh, last question I'm going to give you a moment to think about while I do a commercial. Okay. So pretend that for the next 60 seconds, the entire world is going to listen to the podcast. What are you going to tell the world in 60 seconds? While you think about your answer, let me remind our listeners that the Sojournal Podcast is brought to you by the Johnson University Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So, Dean Davis, a graduate of the Johnson University, Tennessee, or Johnson Bible College, class of 1958 claiming to be a part of the class of 1957. We'll let that happen. What one-minute message would you give to the world?
1: We don't possess the answers to all of the problems and difficulties in the world, but we can serve the one who does have all of the answers. There is one who knows. He's the one who died on the cross for us, who rose again, who sits at the right hand of the Father who is making intercession for us today. He is the one who's coming back one day to redeem not only us, but the world. My message to the world is, don't turn your back on Jesus.
0: Wise advice. Thank you so much for your time, for your passion, for ministry, for Christ, and for Johnson. It's been great to spend this time with you. Thank you for sharing your life with us on The Sojournal Podcast.
1: Thank you for letting me.
0: The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University, edited by Tyson Chastain, music by Loyal Love, podcast graphics by Rachel Woolard. Tune in to other Sojournal Podcasts dropping each Monday on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening.